be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you want to get out your uh, sermon outline. Should say Christ, belief versus unbelief. We're coming to the end of John chapter 7. And Jesus is speaking here. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it begins, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search, see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it teaches all that you use it for in our lives. Thank you that you promise that your word goes forth and never returns to you void, but always accomplishes the purposes for which you send it out. We ask that you would accomplish your purposes through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've made a decision this has ramifications. I've decided the internet is misnamed. We're going to have to change the name of the internet. All you techies are going to have to take notes. We'll now be calling it the Exhibitionet. The Exhibitionet. And it's simply because the internet has unleashed the greatest outburst of mass exhibitionism in the history of the world. Everyone may not be entitled to 15 minutes of fame, as Andy Warhol once suggested, but apparently everyone is entitled to strive for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 90 minutes or however long they want to overflow with whatever is inside them, limited only apparently by their bandwidth. And it's the exhibition net that's making this possible. We have blogs, 
How many of you all have a blog? Ooh, very few. We're almost blogless. We've got one, two, three, four, and a couple who I know have blogs but won't put their hands up. <clears throat> we have the social networking sites such as Zanga and MySpace and Facebook. Who's got pages on one of those? Ah, more hands are coming up. We're assuming all of the college students are included there. And uh, you members there uh, at those sites can post personal pages with pictures and text. We have YouTube, where anyone can post home videos. And, of course, we have all their rivals. Anybody posted a video on YouTube? Ah, we've got some of those, too. Everything about all of these sites is a scream for attention. Look at me, listen to me, laugh with me, or at least laugh at me. And it's no longer fringe behavior. Based on the numbers, I'm not sure you can get any more mainstream than this. You don't have a Facebook site, Mark? I'm shocked. One century at a time with Mark. <laughs> I love you. Facebook started as a site for college students. It now has more than 9 million members. 12 million Americans have web logs or blogs. YouTube now says that over 100 million videos are watched each and every day. And MySpace claims 56 million members in America alone. And we have no idea how many people have personal web pages out there. But the numbers are in the tens of millions. And if you add up the numbers, even allowing for overlap, that means that approximately one-third, or 33% of all Americans, men, women, and children, now have a personal presence on the Internet. And the exhibition that is big business. In 2005, MySpace sold for $580 million. Yahoo is supposedly buying Facebook for slightly over $1 billion, and Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion. And all these sites aim to make money, mainly through ads and fees. And what's interesting, culturally and politically, is that their mass popularity contradicts the belief that people fear the Internet will violate their right to privacy. In reality, millions of Americans are gleefully discarding, or at least cheerfully compromising their right to privacy. They're posting personal and intimate stuff in places where millions of people can see it. People seem to crave popularity or celebrity more than they fear the loss of privacy. And some of this is crass self-promotion. The Internet is a very cheap way to advertise ideas and products. Last September, there was a very popular series of videos on YouTube known as Lonely Girl 15. And it was revealed to be a scripted drama written by three aspiring filmmakers and not, as everybody thought, the random meditations of a lonely teenage girl. But the exhibition, that is more than a marketing tool. 
The same impulse that inspires people to overflow by spilling their guts on Jerry Springer or by participating in the non-reality TV shows has now found a mass outlet. MySpace aims at an 18 to 34-year-old audience. And many of the pages are, to put it mildly, proudly raunchy. U.S. News and World Report had a cover article last September on MySpace. And uh, I love their description. They described MySpace as Lake Wobegon gone horribly wrong, a place where all the women are fast and the men are hard drinking. And up to a point, the blogs and the social networking sites just represent a new form of electronic schmoozing, you know, extensions of email and instant messaging. But what's different is this undiluted passion for self-publicity. The larger reality, and often the unintended reality, is that today's exhibitionism may last a lifetime. You know, what goes on the Internet often stays on the Internet. And something that seems harmless or silly or merely impetuous now, when we look at it in two weeks or two months or two decades, will seem offensive and stupid and reckless. Henry David Thoreau famously remarked that the massive men leave lives of quiet desperation. Well, thanks to technology, that's no longer necessary. People can now lead lives of noisy and ostentatious desperation. We all overflow with something. We can overflow with desperation. We can overflow with self-promotion. We can overflow with immorality. We can overflow with self-righteousness. And whether we try to keep it to ourselves or post it online for the whole world to see, we can be sure of one thing. Jesus is intensely interested in what's overflowing in our lives. After all, it was Jesus who said in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And today the good and evil coming forth is free, live, and online. And people are in a race to overflow for all the world to see and for God to judge. And that brings us to our text this morning. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And our passage today opens with Jesus making a dramatic statement. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he makes a statement, we're told, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now to fully understand this dramatic and for the Jews stunning statement, that Jesus is making here, it's necessary to understand what happens on the last and greatest day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles is a feast of thanksgiving to God for his provision for Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness in the desert for 40 years. And each day of the festival, the people come to the temple with palm branches, which they use to form a roof over their head while they march around the great altar inside the temple. At the same time, the priests take golden pitchers, and the high priest takes this great, huge golden pitcher. 
And they go down to the pool of Siloam, and they fill it with water. And they carry it back to the temple through the water gate, while all the people chanted from Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the water was carried up to the great altar, and it was poured out on the altar as an offering to God. And this was done over and over and over again until the water overflowed from around the altar and it ran out until it reached all the people who surrounded the altar. And the whole dramatic ceremony is a vivid thanksgiving for God's good gifts of water, which we see back in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, when the water sprang from the rock while Israel was traveling through the wilderness. And it's a reminder to them of their dependence on God, as well as being an acted-out prayer that God would continue to send forth rain on them as a sign of his blessing. And it also serves to remind the Jews that God would pour out his spirit in the last days at the time of the Messiah. And that's the backdrop that Jesus has and that Jesus uses to make his dramatic statement at the beginning of our passage. So let's see what he says and how the people respond. We start with thirsty people overflowing with the Spirit. Overflowing with the Spirit. We see Jesus standing up in the temple courts while this dramatic water ceremony is going on, and in a loud voice he issues a call to the thirsty. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's calling the people to come, drink, and believe. He's calling the people to enter into a personal relationship with him, and secondly, to recognize that they have real serious needs. Not mere physical needs, but greater spiritual needs, needs of the heart. And responding to his call involves trusting him, trusting he can actually meet those needs, both the physical needs and the greater spiritual needs. See, Jesus knew the crowd around him had a far deeper and far more urgent need than did their ancestors in the wilderness. For their thirsts, like ours today, are spiritual and eternal. You can't help but think of all the thirsty people around us, the restless, parched multitudes around us today. People in our neighborhoods, people at work, people at school, just folks that we know. Maybe you see them, you know, at all the various activities we do. You know, on the on the field or on the court in the arena. All the folks that were around are thirsty. And we all know people who are desperately trying to quench their thirst by a constant round of parties or one illicit affair after another, feverishly struggling to keep up in the race for the most stuff. And in the end, they're always left more hopeless and more thirsty. And the people who responded to Jesus' call then were thirsty to have their spiritual needs met. And the people who responded to Jesus' call now are just as thirsty to have their spiritual needs met. 
They're thirsty for forgiveness. They're thirsty for redemption. They're thirsty for salvation. They're thirsty for relationship. They're thirsty for community. They're thirsty for substance. They're thirsty for God's Word. And they're thirsty to know God, not just to talk about Him, but to really know Him. We all admit physical thirst when it happens. But many of us have trouble admitting that we have spiritual thirsts. Perhaps it's our constant activity just dulls the senses, making us delay the search for Christ's help. If you're a thirsty person this morning, and I think most of you are, then Christ is calling you, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He finishes his dramatic statement, verse 38, by saying, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The people who get the rivers of living water are those who come to Christ. Notice it's not just a trickle or a a few drops. It's streams, it's rivers. The supply of living water is unrestricted. Because we learn in verse 39, the living water is the Holy Spirit. It says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Not so that we'll have a little bit more time to squeeze out a little more life, but so that our life, when he comes, will be filled to overflowing with Christ. As Jesus said in John 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. See, the Holy Spirit isn't going to fit a little Christianity into our daily routine to make it a little bit easier to handle. But the Holy Spirit works in us so that Christ can transform our lives, so that we become new and different people, so we become people who've had the Holy Spirit poured out on them, so we become people who've been refreshed by the living water of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in Jesus' dramatic announcement that the Scripture is being fulfilled. Isaiah 55 First three verses. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Come, everyone who thirsts, that your soul may live. And Jesus issues that call right here in the temple courts. Again, fulfilling prophecy, we read in Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. Isn't that a wonderful promise? He will satisfy your desire in scorched places. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to make each of us into that spring, a spring of living water, water which never fails. And Jesus says, for that person whose heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That person will be changed from the inside out. He or she will be so filled, there will be a spontaneous overflowing, an outgoing sharing of life with those nearby. 
That person becomes a source of blessing to others. Reminds me of the prayer of the humble man that said, Lord, I can't hold much, but help me overflow lots. And the believer passes on the blessings he's received from God. The, a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 5.18 commands us to be, will be a person who will pass on to others the blessings that he or she has received from God. See, spiritual supplies flow from committed people, people um, who are God's people. The refreshment comes from Christ, but the channel he uses for the overflowing of living water is people, people like you and me, people who are committed to God, who are committed to knowing God, who are committed to loving God. The Holy Spirit is given to people who obey God. The Holy Spirit is the gift of the Lord to all believers. And he gives the Holy Spirit to those who love him. And believers demonstrate that love for God by their obedience to him. And Christians hold that the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is known by the way that that person lives, by how he or she lives. And the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life should be obvious if the Spirit's in their life. We know what the fruit of the Spirit is, Galatians 5 fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Paul continues in Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so it is that humble, ordinary, everyday people come to Christ and believe in Him and become different people. And it becomes obvious. But that's not true for everybody. Because we see in the next part of our passage that the majority of people are overflowing with doubt. Overflowing with doubt. We start with an interesting comment in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. You know, and I think they're essentially guessing, jumping to conclusions. They thought that Jesus must somehow be like Moses, who's the one that made the water gush from the rock back in Exodus and Numbers Although 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Jesus is the rock that provides the water. But they're not sure. They acknowledge the power of Jesus' teaching, but they don't take it far enough. We'll see in verse 52, the Pharisees reject even this limited uh, acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And we need to be careful here. We should be cautious about jumping to any conclusions about Christ that doesn't directly and clearly come from the Scriptures. Remember, John's writing this. What's his purpose in writing? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's jump down to verse 44 here in John 7. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Here the temple guards have returned to the Pharisees empty-handed. And the Pharisees confront them. Why'd you not bring them? The only thing they can say is, no one ever spoke like this man. The guards, whether intentional or unintentional, we don't know for sure, but they're acknowledging Jesus to be a great speaker, a great teacher. They recognize the righteousness and the boldness of his words. However, I think they're still guessing at who Jesus is. I don't think they realize how close to the truth they are. 
He's not speaking the words of men, but the words of God. So rather than capture Jesus, the guards are captured by Jesus, by his words. And now we see the evil intent of the Pharisees start to be revealed. They rebuke the temple guards. They go on to say what they want to say without taking the time to examine the evidence. They felt no need to examine Jesus' words uh, carefully, and as a result, they too jumped to conclusions. In effect, they're saying no one else is allowed to pass judgment on this man. Only we can do that. It's going to be our way or no way. They're simply refusing to listen to anyone else. and They're utterly closed-minded about the whole matter. And they ridicule the guards for having compromised their theological integrity and having been deceived by this imposter who certainly could never deceive them. Look at what they say, verse 47. The Pharisees answer them, Have you also been deceived? They're claiming that Jesus is a deceiver. It's interesting to see in the New Testament how few of the wise and noble by the world's standards are chosen by God. God seems to make it a practice to choose the weak, the foolish, the ignorant, the despised, and then by his power, not theirs. Use them to build the kingdom of God. And so we see the reality that in this matter, it is the Pharisees who have deceived themselves. However, there were a few people who did recognize Jesus for who he was. Going back to verse 41, it says, Others said, This is the Christ. They got it. They came to a logical conclusion based on what he'd done and what he'd said. And similarly today, if people come to the Bible to examine the claims of Christ with an open heart and an open mind, likely they'll respond with these people, yes, he is the Christ. But we need to ensure that we're reading from the Bible what it actually says, and not like the Pharisees, reading into the Bible what we want it to say. And then we need to think for ourselves about who this Jesus is. We need to think seriously about who he is, what he said, what he's done, and how am I going to respond to all of that? Will I call him a prophet? Will I call him a great teacher? Will I call him a deceiver? Or will I call him the Christ? and put my faith in him. See, just like back then, the majority of people today remain in doubt. And to remain in doubt is to remain in unbelief. People will always make objections. Some are good objections. They're worth wrestling with. But many are just objections for objection's sake. And look what happened back then. Go to the last part of verse 41. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. To remain in division is to remain in doubt. To remain in doubt is to remain in unbelief. And giving in unbelief simply because you're not willing to wrestle through all the claims of Christ for yourself is to remain overflowing with deception. Overflowing with deception. And of course, the classic example of people overflowing with deception are the Pharisees. They've succeeded in deceiving themselves. They've rebuked the temple guards. The guards had heard from themselves. They recognized Jesus' authority. They realized his wisdom is greater than their own teachers. And they come back to the Pharisees as relatively unbiased witnesses, only to be rejected for not towing the party line. And in verse 48, we see the Pharisees sort of formally uh, declaring their unbelief. 
says, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They refuse to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And they're proud of their unbelief. They're holding up their unbelief as an example, just like those who refuse to believe today. They were saying then, just like people speak about believers today, these people know nothing. The Pharisees had contempt for the common man. They find it easier to label people than to listen to them. And so for them, looking down on others becomes a stumbling block to the gospel. And it's no different today. Those people who are the most hostile to Christ, the most hostile towards Christians, the professional atheists of modern science, they look down on those of us who believe. They think we're A, stupid, and B, dangerous because we're stupid. And so for them, looking down on others becomes a stumbling block to the gospel, just like the Pharisees. Pharisees not only reject the words of the witnesses, but in their arrogance, they imply that only they really know and understand the law. They make the comment in verse 49, this crowd that does not know the law is cursed. They say the people who don't know the law are cursed. I think we need to be aware, we need to be wary of those who claim to have an exclusive hold on the truth. And I emphasize the word exclusive, but that's exactly what Christians shouldn't be when it comes to the gospel. When Christians become Pharisees and begin to claim exclusive knowledge, I think it winds up doing harm to the kingdom of God. Jesus says in his prayer to God the Father in John 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And God's truth is found in God's word is available to all willing to seek it by coming to the scriptures and read it for themselves. It's not exclusive. It's not for the few. No one has an exclusive claim to be the only correct interpreter of what the Bible teaches. God reserves that claim for himself. And those of us in the Reformed camp are especially susceptible to this. We generally think we have a good grasp of biblical theology, and therefore we're pretty confident we got it right, and you should listen to us. And all that's true, but it's a small step over a very fine line to then saying you should only listen to us. It's very dangerous. As Paul says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us to avoid the arrogance of the Pharisees. We should depend on the Word of God to gain knowledge of the truth and to serve as a guide to what we say and do. It's hypocritical for the Pharisees to claim that others don't know the Scriptures as well as they do, but then refuse to follow it themselves. The Pharisees' job, their reason for existing, is to get people to observe the law, but they're failing to keep the law themselves. And in verses 50 and 51, Nicodemus, who shows up again, we sort of lost him after John 3, but now he's back, and he's calling the Pharisees on this, being one of them. They won't listen to his counsel. He sees they're jumping to the wrong conclusions, and he challenges them. He asks them about the Scripture. He asks them about hearing and learning, says verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him, Jesus, before, and who was one of them, said to them, 
does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And he's using the technique of asking a question to provide them with counsel. In effect, he's asking them, can you do what you're about to do? Is it scriptural? Is it ethical? Is it moral? Aren't you breaking the law yourself by passing judgment without examining the evidence first? Go back and examine God's word. Examine your own hearts. But the Pharisees are angry men. And people who've lost their temper don't usually weigh arguments carefully. Instead, they rely on that old defense when you can't answer the arguments, attack the speaker. If you're not sure people will do that, just wait till the presidential debates come around. It's very common. And that's what they do here. Ignoring Nicodemus' question and counsel, they verbally turn on him. They insult him. Using the same misguided complaint people had back in verses 41 and 42, the Pharisees go on the attack. Verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search, see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And essentially what we're getting here is, are you one of those simple-minded, unsophisticated country bumpkins? We know what we're talking about. And they reveal their prejudice against those who aren't just like them, who don't think like they do, who don't speak like they do, who don't act like they do. And Nicodemus has just set himself apart from the unbelieving wisdom of the Pharisees and joined the believing, simple-minded, common folk. And today, people often commit the same error as the Pharisees. They allow their prejudices, their superficial evaluations blind them to the truth of Christ. I mean, to be honest, we're a garbage-in, garbage-out society, and everyone overflows with something. We started this morning with Jesus' dramatic statement, the beginning of our passage. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, how are we to drink this water? Though the offer is free and open to all, there's some terms that need to be met. I've used this illustration before, but it's so good, you're just going to have to bear with it again. In his novel, The Silver Chair, part of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis puts his finger on this in the clearest of terms. There is a scene where one of the characters, Jill, sees a lion. And she's scared out of her wits, and she runs into the forest. And she runs so hard, she wears herself out, and she's about to die of thirst, or so she thinks, when she hears the gurgling brook in the distance. And she approaches it and is almost ready to go to the brook when on the grass before her is that same lion. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without even noticing it, she had already taken a step closer to the stream. 
Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And he didn't say this as if he were boasting or if he were sorry or if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, unconsciously getting a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his face could do that. And her mind just suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she ran forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Do you see what C.S. Lewis is saying? When you come to the water, you're coming to a lion. And you come on the lion's terms. And you have to yield yourself by faith in order to get the water. And some of us need to realize that we're thirsty, that we need that water so badly we're going to die without it. We need to step out in faith, yielding to the lion of the tribe of Judah and to receive the living water of eternal life. At the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Levites lead the people in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. That prayer is recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah. And part of it goes like this. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. We saw in John 6 that Jesus is now the bread from heaven. And now we see in John 7 that he is the rock from which comes living water, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. He hasn't withheld the bread from us. He hasn't withheld the water from us. He hasn't withheld the spirit from us because he is a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Do our lives reflect the fact that we're filled with living water? Do our lives show that we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Do our lives reveal Christ by the fruit of the Spirit that others can see in us? Are we overflowing with the love of Christ? What are you overflowing with? Because everyone's overflowing with something. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.